Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and today I'm talking with Linda K. Klein, whose book Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free, is out now from Touchstone. Linda is the founder of Break Free Together. She earned a master's degree from New York University focused on American evangelical Christian gender and sexuality messaging for girls, and has spent over a decade working at the cross-section of faith, gender, and social change. Linda and I have been friends for a few years, and when we met, she was working on what would become Pure. In fact, she worked on Pure for 12 years. Raised in 1990s evangelical purity culture, which taught girls that they were either virginal and pure or sexual and impure, Linda grew up feeling shame about her sexuality. She wasn't the only one. In Pure, Linda writes about her own story and those of a generation of women who endured the sexual shame, the effects of which are akin to PTSD. Here, we discuss the power of sharing our stories of shame. Yes, there's a little talk of Brene Brown. We talk about how Linda fostered an open environment to record her interviews with these women, and the responsibility of being the steward of their stories. We also talk about the morning ritual she created to get ready to write, how the structure came together on her living room floor, and why she's glad that the book didn't come out years ago. Very, very often people were telling me stories that they'd never told anyone, or that if they had told someone, it was really just one or two people that they'd told. Um, so there's a deep need that people have to tell these stories. Um, they need to get it out of them, and they and they feel a sense of, um, I think, urgency around it, You know, even, even alongside potentially feeling afraid of, of exposing these things. So I know that you have been working on this for so long and, you know, you talk about it in the book as, as you just said a moment ago too, that kind of the lifespan of it is having this 12 year, this 12 year shelf life. And, um, wonder if you could just start by telling people, you know, I don't want to ask you to just tell tell them everything that's in the book, but sort of like what, you know, what this project was to you, what it, what, what made you start? Mm. Yeah, so this this project really started as a personal exploration, I would say, not not necessarily as a writing project. I wasn't in, I wasn't convinced that it wasn't a writing project. I just wasn't convinced that it was. Um, so essentially, I was going through a lot of pain in my own life. I had left the evangelical church, and I had rejected the sexual shame that I had learned in the church, and I was under the impression that that meant that I would now be free of sexual shame. <laughs> I had selected to no longer experience it and to no longer try to live by the purity culture rules that I had learned that were so shaming. Um, and that was really when I discovered just how bound by the um, the rules I really was because I had so deeply internalized them uh, that now that even though I disagreed with them intellectually and was wanting to make choices like have sex with my long-term boyfriend in my early 20s <laughs> that, um, that I was taught I wasn't allowed to make uh, because we weren't married, um, you know, even though I felt fine with making those choices, my, my body was revolting against me. So I was having, you know, a lot of fear and shame and anxiety, and it was manifesting physically in ways that, um, you know, made me completely feel damaged and broken. 
um, and scared. And essentially, you know, that drove me to start to talk to some of my girlfriends I grew up with in the church, um, the evangelical church that I had grown up with in the mid Midwest and to tell them what I was experiencing and to ask them if they were experiencing the same thing, because I had this hunch that, uh, you know, the folks I was talking to in the secular world weren't experiencing it, but I had this hunch that the girls I had grown up with were, and, um, and indeed they were. And so I spent many years suffering, um, and trying to heal on my own, uh, and having these healing conversations with girls I'd grown up with back home, which were the only ways in which I was starting to, to come to some, um, deconstruction of what I'd learned and reconstruction of something better. And so when I was in my, in my mid twenties, you know, still very much living sexual shame, um, I'd gotten to this point where I was like, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna get through this on my own. You know, the only way I'm ever gonna deal with this is if I find the others. And so I went back to my hometown, uh, and spent a year talking to the girls I had grown up with in the church and gathering their stories. And about half of the now young women I had grown up with were telling me stories that were startlingly similar to my own. Um, you know, stories of sexual shame and fear and anxiety that were manifesting physically in ways that mimicked PTSD. And that was jarring um, and terrifying and affirming and relieving. And so that year of interviews uh, ultimately became the beginning of what later developed into 12 years of interviews uh, with people from around the country who were raised in communities like my own, these white American evangelical churches as girls, documenting other people's stories and healing through the stories of others, essentially. You know, in a sense, it's not unlike what we're taught throughout society. You know, it's the sort of whole like version of the whore and the way the women are kind of presented in media. And you think like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I know we're all kind of not, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, like we are very well versed these, you know, if you're a, a self-aware feminist of our age um, of the ways in which those messages are fed to us, but this is like a kind of even more weaponized version of all of that. It felt like. Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, you're absolutely right that this is, you know, massively widespread. This is not just about evangelicalism. So, I mean, one of the ways that I talk to people about that is, you know, in the church, I grew up learning there are two types of girls and women, those who are pure and those who are impure, which is deeply problematic that we're defining people in their totality based on one thing about them, right? Their sexual lives, um, you know, and, but basically we're, we're taught the same thing in society. We're taught about good girls and bad girls. And when you hear, you know, oh, she's a bad girl, you know that we're not talking about the fact that she's very selfish or that she, you know, doesn't visit her grandmother on the weekends. You know, we're talking about people's sexual lives. So, yeah, so the church, um, the evangelical church is really teaching the same thing that we learn in society. The difference is um, that it's deified uh, and that it's intensified. And in particular, in the early 1990s, when the evangelical church um, launched the purity movement, which became this purity industry with all kinds of products that teach purity, um, you know, it just completely surrounded uh, girls who who grew up in that era. Um, you know, all of my interviewees uh, were, you know, either in, in youth group in the years of the late 80s to the early 2000s, um, which is really sort of the heyday of the purity movement um, when there was a lot of money uh, going for all of these things. So, so those of us who grew up in that community, you know, are definitely experiencing 
I think a more intense version of of what those around the country are experiencing. But I think in some ways you can look at what my interviewees and I experienced and say, okay, here's how this messaging, this toxic messaging impacts people when it's in high doses. And, you know, how can we then pedal back from that and understand that actually in, in smaller doses, you know, we're all experiencing this. And so there are shades of this that I think are very familiar to a very broad population of people. Yeah. Yeah. What did you learn about why that industry started when it did? Yeah. So this was after the sexual revolution. Um, and it was also, uh, you know, the late the late 80s is really when this started to ramp up and the early 90s is when it became a full-fledged industry. Um, So this is uh, in a midst of terror around the AIDS crisis. And uh, and the narrative basically became, uh, we we had the sexual revolution, people started having a lot of sex, now sex is killing people. And uh, the only way that we can, you know, really cure this this problem is to just stop people from having sex. So it became, it was this logic, it was this logic that made sense uh, in itself if you didn't, you know, actually test it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and there was just this narrative that if we just could stop people from having sex, then we'll stop all of these problems, um, including, including the AIDS crisis. And so a lot of money started to go toward abstinence only before marriage education. And that money at the federal and state level uh, really supported the purity message um, becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and gaining more momentum. And so, so you're kind of dealing with, you know, not only is there not a discussion of sex going on in these communities and probably, I mean, it seems from most of your interviewees within the families, but also it's not like you can go to your mother and your mother understands what you're being taught. Like that was another really, really surprising thing to me in the book. Yeah, there's, it's interesting, certainly, certainly many of the mothers that I spoke with and and my own mother, you know, there wasn't a, a clear line of communication to parents about what was actually being taught. And I think certainly a lot of the parents that I spoke with and, and my, my own mother were not familiar <laughs> with the messages. And, um, and I think, I, I mean, I say this with deep love for my mom, but I think that there was a relief that people felt, um, to not have to be, to not have to be talking about sex with their kids because the church was taking care of that and they trusted the church and they trust the church, uh, implicitly really, and determined that if the church was going to take this topic on, that they would probably do a better job than they could do anyway, than the parents could do anyway. And so we, we didn't have to know the details of what was necessarily being taught. Um, but of course there were parents who tried to figure out the details of what was being taught and were turned away. We're told, uh, you know, this, this is, um, this is something that we need to have ultimate trust between the children and the youth leaders. So we can't actually have uh, parents around or, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to go into great depth explaining all of this to you. So, yeah, so there was really a wall between uh, what we were experiencing in the church uh, around sexuality education and what our parents thought we were, which was probably partially, you know, the church's, the church's, um, falling down on that point and probably partially parents who remember that, uh, you know, shame has been taught 
for generations around sexuality. And so a lot of parents, I think, you know, there is there is their own lessons that they grew up with uh, around sexuality and shame that prevents them from um, from really getting in there about what kids are being taught as much as they want to be in there. <laughs> it's right. hard. You have to do your personal work before you can before you can really help others, and that personal work is is really dangerous and difficult. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that was so remarkable to me, like you know, when you present the information the way that you have presented it with these sort of, um, you know, you'll kind of address a theme or a topic and then you'll, you'll have a few excerpts from different transcripts of, of how women spoke about that. And so you just see this just sort of kind of like all of these isolated dots of women trying to work out all of the stuff on their own, like you were trying to do. Yeah. And just like how, how much that thread to connect them all was needed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. For me, the the real hope and healing came from realizing that I wasn't alone. And um and once I started to tell my story and hear my story told back to me in the stories of others, you know, the details being different, but the core messages of shame and fear and anxiety and its physical manifestation being the same, um, you know, that's when I started to be able to piece it together. You know, you, I, I essentially put myself through 12 years of narrative therapy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it was incredibly healing because unless, unless you really can start to step into community and understand how this is playing out in a lot of different people's lives, it's really easy to, to fall into, um, silence and self-blame. I mean, really that's, that's what shame does. So shame you know, for those folks who are not, you know, massive Brene Brown fans and don't don't know this this narrative already, you know, shame is uh, this idea that I am something bad or that people will think I am something bad, um, as opposed to, for example, guilt, which is this feeling I did something bad. So when you're in a shame state, you know, you are perceiving yourself or fearing that others will perceive you as wholly and fundamentally bad or worthless, potentially. And and shame actually makes you uh, separate yourself from other people. Um, you don't want anyone to see this bad self, right? You don't want other people to see the part of you that you fear will make them think that you are a bad self. And so you can withdraw or you can hide those aspects of yourself or you can lash out at people to keep them away or lash out at yourself and self-blame. Um, but essentially what you're doing is you're creating separation. And um, and this separation, you know, ultimately leads to silence because you think it's all your fault. So so the very the very thing <laughs> that we need to heal is to start to tell our stories and hear the stories of others uh, with stories similar to our own, so that we can start to piece this together. And shame shame makes it very very difficult to do that. It, it's reminding me as we're talking a few years ago. Um, I interviewed Cheryl Strayed when the the, uh, the collection the name that's totally escaping my mind, but the the Dear Sugar advice yeah. column when that collection came out. Um, and she said that she felt like every question she was asked, um, distilled down to just, am I okay? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's real. I, you know, as healing as it was for me to do these interviews, it was really healing for other people. And they, 
they identified two reasons that I kept hearing from people again and again um, around why it was healing. And one was you asked me what I was taught about sexuality growing up and how it's impacting me, which most of us never get asked that question. Most of us never really consider that to any to any great extent. Um, so I, it got them thinking about something that had previously been um, uncovered. And then two, you know, you told me your story and you told me the stories of other people that made me realize that I wasn't alone. And if I'm not alone, then I can't be the problem. Yes. It can't be that I, you know, that I am bad or that I am broken or that I am sinful. You know, the problem has to be something outside of me. So I think, I, yeah, I would completely agree with that. You know, in, in essence, people identified I am okay um, by, by, through this realization that I'm not alone. And so much of, I think the responses to this struck me, um, to be very universal. And so I don't want to like, you know, not to reduce the specificity of these stories and of the evangelical church context, but I think that's so much, so much resonated with me, um, about the idea of just as a woman kind of stepping into your agency, realizing that you don't have to you're not accountable to everyone that you don't have to ask everyone for permission. I think when you're raised in situations that encourage that, it does take a lot of very conscious work to undo that. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with you. It's actually been really interesting. I've had a lot of people who have read the book and then said, you know, I thought I was reading a book about those people. (laughs) (laughs) And then they, and then they start to cry and they say, wait, why am I crying? Why is this my story? Why, why are these the stories of my friends? You know, I didn't grow up in this community. I didn't grow up in this culture. And, and that's, and that's what I mean when I say, you know, looking at these stories in many ways, you know, what we're doing is um, looking at the deep pain that can result when this is taught um, in such a, an overwhelming surrounding way, but that pain is universal. I think, you know, I, I almost, I almost can't think of a woman who has claimed never to experience sexual shame. Um, you know, this is, this is such a common reality and, and certainly the, the evangelical church plays a role in that and, and purposefully, you know, in the early 1990s brought the purity message to, to the larger society in a much more intentional way. Um, but if evangelicalism had never taken this issue on, (laughs) it would still be there. Can you talk a little bit about um, those interview processes, especially when you start talking to friends of friends and people that you don't know as closely where that comfort level isn't there? What, what, what did you do or like what kind of did you learn over time about making those environments sort of as open to sharing as possible? Yeah, uh, I always bring food. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that there was, a, there was a really passing reference to like this Tupperware fudge brownies. And I was like, oh, that's really smart. That was really yeah. smart. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I, another person read it and said, I feel like you're constantly eating and drinking in this book. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, the Center for Courage and Renewal, this organization talks about how you need a third thing sometimes, which mm. is for them a piece of poetry or something like that. But you need something that you can touch, that you can access that, um, that isn't as painful as the hard truth. Um, so, so I, I feel like in some ways, you know, having, having something there that we could interact with and touch and, um, 
and and could be there to take some of the pressure off like food um, is helpful. Um, but also the other thing about always bringing food or having food is that I really tried to bring a spirit of hospitality. Um, so whether I was you know, going and meeting someone at their home or, or whatever it was, I really tried to make it feel like I was bringing someone into, into a space that I was hosting for them, you know, that was a sacred space that I was hosting and holding. Um, and that was really my approach was, was around holding space. You know, how do I hold space for somebody recognizing that for some that's going to take you know, they're, they think they're going to be here for 20 minutes and they might end up being here for five hours. But, but I, think that's, I think that's exactly how it happened. It's by holding space. And then the other thing that I did is perhaps not always, but certainly most of the time, started my interviews by asking people uh, to go back to their grandparents. Mm. I said, you know, I just want to hear your story. Um, the things I really want to, you know, delve into most as you get to them in your story are around sex and gender and sexuality. But I really want to hear your whole story. And so let's go all the way back because people tend to start their stories late. You know, you tell someone you want to hear about their story about sex and sexuality, they might start in their 20s. Um, so I try to get them to go all the way back and I say, tell me about your grandparents and then tell me about your parents. Tell me about your childhood. And and I think that that, that really was very useful because oftentimes when people are talking about their grandparents, it's not as fraught. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you're able to kind of help people to, to get into talking to you when you don't know them very well. Um, and, and they watch your responses and they watch whether you're judgmental and they watch whether you're really listening. And, you know, by creating the space for people to start talking about something that might not be um, deeply emotional for them, although certainly some of us have grandparents, um, you know, within which there's a lot of emotion in our relationships. But, um, but for the most part, you know, people, people are, feel safe to avoid any, <laughs> any dangerous ground when you go back that far. And then you build trust slowly. And by the time they get to talking about the things that, um, that are really potentially quite intimate, uh, you know, there's, there's a trust that's built there just by the fact that I didn't stop them or rush them or tell them that we only have 20 minutes left or, uh, or look at my phone or whatever it is that, that breaks the sacredness of that space. Yeah. I really loved, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the woman's name, but it's you're together in a bar and she mm -hmm. starts talking kind of unexpectedly and you end up writing on a, on the, the, uh, like the order pad that the waitress gives you. And then when that runs out, you're like writing on stacks of napkins. Right. You're just right. like, but keep going. Like, definitely keep going. <laughs> right. And that would often happen too. You know, sometimes people would start talking about the deep stuff even before we got in to tell me your story. And so sometimes the recorder wouldn't be on, right? And I'd be like, okay, wait, let me, <laughs> let me yeah, turn yeah, this yeah. on. Because because the other thing that's the other thing that's the reality is that people have so much emotion around these stories. And, uh, and almost never do they get to really share them. I, very, very often people were telling me stories that they'd never told anyone or that if they had told someone, it was really just one or two people that they'd told. Um, so there's a deep need that people have to tell these stories. Um, they need to get it out of them and they, and they feel a sense of, um, I think urgency around it, you know, even, even alongside potentially feeling afraid of, of exposing these things. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's something that's, that's really, you know, 
uplifting, I guess, about it is, is you look at this spectrum of experiences and there's something comforting in the fact that like yourself does try to come out of that. Like you do, Mm. like you do what, you know, like even, and I don't know um, if you, if you get into this much in the book, but I was just like, how did, like Linda ended up at Sarah Lawrence, like something in you was like, this is not like what I, where I should be, you know? And, um, and this idea that just like, you can, you can be in these environments that are harmful to you, but your, your higher self or whatever you want to call it will try to correct you. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, interestingly, so the structure of the book was a really tricky thing for me to work on because this is a very personal story. So there are elements of it that, uh, that I wanted to represent personally that, you know, almost memoir style. Um, this is other people's stories. Um, so there's an, almost an oral history element to it. Um, and then this is also a report on abstinence culture and evangelical churches and how it impacts people. So there's a journalistic element. So creating a structure that allowed for all of those things was, was really, really quite difficult. Um, so the structure that I ended up settling on was after the introduction, there are these four movements. The first is stories of, of girlhood. How does this messaging get into your brain, you know, as a girl? And then the second is stories of people who are really struggling with purity messaging while within the evangelical community. And then the third section is uh, stories of people who are struggling after having left the evangelical community. It's a very different struggle. It's actually markedly different. Um, and uh, and then the fourth one is stories of, of freedom and reconciliation and hope. Um, so stories of people who are both within and outside of the evangelical church who are, um, you know, finding their way to freedom and, and, um, and to claiming their whole selves, their mind and their spirit and their bodies and, and making the way for others to do the same. And each of those four sections, I decided to open with a chapter from my own story that speaks to that section. Because I've been I've been in all of those places. <laughs> and um and then every other subsequent chapter is a deep dive on somebody else's story um to really, you know, so so that you really get to know intimately, you know, multiple people and then other people's, you know, in in quotes other people's stories support the larger frame, but you know, from a just as this is a writing podcast, yeah. <laughs> I figured I would mention that because that was a really that was a really tricky structure to to um, zero in on. How did you eventually zero in? Was it a lot of trying other structures and putting them together and realizing they didn't work? Yeah. Yeah. That was the short, that's the short answer. So, um, so I did, uh, I think the thing that was the most useful is when I just organized everything that I had, all of the stories, all the writing, all the um, themes uh, and, and basically wrote them all down on little scraps of paper. And then I filled the floor of my apartment um, with these scraps of paper and just reordered them and ordered them again and reordered them and ordered them again and did that. I, I mean, I would say that they were all over my floor for, you know, for weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and I would just tape them down and, and tape them in stretches and then cut them apart and do it again. And then realize that, oh, there's another thing here and then cut that up and try it again. So, I mean, I had two structures that were originally presented that, that got denied by my um, editor after, after I handed in the book. And, and really that was, really that was the primary way. She was actually really 
light touch in editing. Like, in, I, I would say that this book really feels like it's my book. Um, my editor didn't have a heavy hand at all. Um, the only place in which she really had a, um, a heavy hand, even though she actually, uh, you know, still had a light touch in it was in saying, no, that's not right. That structure isn't right. Um, and so, so ultimately I had to do, I did two structures that, uh, that just didn't quite didn't quite work that got turned back. And then finally the last structure, I was like, I think this is the one. So I wrote out, I think I wrote it out in, in 50 pages or something just to really show her <laughs> what the structure was. Um, and, uh, and then, and then that one is the one that I ended up moving forward with. Um, I was just wondering if you had to have kind of emotional days off after getting, you know, getting the manuscript handed back to you two times and being like, nope, still not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had to have emotional breaks the entire time. Yeah. This was an incredibly difficult project. Um, it's my first book. So thinking at that scale and trying to organize all of those things, particularly trying to do something that crosses multiple genres, was really hard, uh, much more difficult than I thought it would be. So structuring was actually, you know, not an easy thing. <laughs> and then the content, you know, the content is so, mm -hmm. so difficult for me. Um, you know, my personal stories, uh, the stories of other people, the emotional work that I had to do throughout around, uh, how people are going to react to this, how my family is going to react, how my community is going to react, how the interviewees are going to react. Um, you know, so on and so forth. And so, you know, so there would be days when I was just incapable of writing for more than an hour just because, yeah, my, my entrails were, were just gripped tight. Yeah. And yeah. And of course, when, when things weren't working, I felt absolutely terrified that I would never get a structure that would work and that this would never work. And, and I would say that my reaction to that was initially to work harder and work longer you know, having worked in the nonprofit sector for most of my career, that that's the answer in the nonprofit sector. <laughs> you know, something isn't working, you stay later, you put in more hours, you make it work. Um, and I ended up actually at one point getting really sick. Uh, so I have, I have Crohn's disease and I'm on medication for Crohn's disease. Uh, and one of my meds is uh, a, an immune system suppressant. So I ended up getting a virus and the virus, because of my immune system suppressants, uh, attacked me really, really hard. And I ended up being sick for, I'd say a month and a half. I had really high temps, you know, for a lot of that period, I had temps in around 104. And I still was forcing myself to work because I felt so much anxiety, like this isn't going to, this isn't going to come together. I'm, I'm never... I'm never going to pull this off. So I have to do, I have to do more. And anybody who's read the book and knows about how, how I have handled illness in the past with my Crohn's disease, you know, will say that I have learned very little because, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but ultimately what I learned through that process was, oh, I have to do things differently. This isn't the nonprofit sector. Um, being a writer is actually completely different. And, um, and if I try to push myself the way that I might have to do in another sector, it's actually going to make me a worse writer and it's going to do harm to harm to this book. Um, you know, some of the things that I, I mean, I did some writing, including a bunch of deleting uh, when I had Tempest at 104. And then afterward, I'd be like, 
what happened to that writing that I deleted <laughs> when I was delirious, you know? Um, so, so after that happened, I, I started a new, a new process where I said, no more eight hours a day, no more writing eight hours a day, minimum. I was writing eight to 10 hours a day. That's, I can't even comprehend that. No, it's, it, yeah, it's not healthy. Um, and you know, but, but that's what I was used to from working other work. Um, so I just had to make peace with the fact that I actually needed to enter into a place of playfulness and, um, if not joy, playfulness, you know, um, where I held this with a looser hand and gave myself more time and space and love. Um, and I started this morning ritual where I spent an hour and a half preparing myself for writing and started to see that as part of the writing. Mm. Um, and then, what um, would you do in the hour and a half? Yeah. So, uh, so I started out with doing yoga in my home and I would do it to, uh, music, uh, that was, that moved me. And then I would dance for one song. (laughs) Um, and then, and now my downstairs neighbors have come up and told me that, uh, perhaps I'm dancing. (laughs) (laughs) Very sad because the dancing to the one song was my favorite part of my day. But, um, but anyway, so, and I would dance to one song and then I would do three pages of journaling, um, in, uh, uh morning pages right. style. Yes. And, and for me, journaling is always a combination of journaling and prayer. Mm. Um, so some of it, you know, was, was overtly prayer and some of it was, you know, I would use those three pages to structure my writing for the day or whatever it was. Um, and then, and then I would, if I still had time within that hour and a half, um, I would do about 10 minutes of meditation and then I would go into writing. So this was all, and I would drink coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was all before I showered, before I did anything. And then I would try to write for, um, uh, I gave myself a requirement of writing four hours a day. Mm-hmm. And some days I would go straight from that ritual into four hours of writing. And some days, you know, an hour in, I would be filled with so much uh, anxiety or pain or whatever it was, or just frustration that it wasn't working, (laughs) you know, that I could only do an hour and then I would take my break, which was showering (laughs) (laughs) or going to the, going out and going for a run or going to the gym or going to yoga and then coming back and showering. And then I would have to finish my four hour minimum commitment, which sometimes I would, you know, try to move locations and go somewhere else like the library to kind of get myself to get through it. Um, and and I remember at one point talking to another friend of mine who was writing a book who was saying that he has four hour work days. And I remember being like, four hour work days? You you're ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> like, like what a life of leisure you lead. Um, you know, but but ultimately I discovered that that's what I needed, you know, and I, I would sometimes write five or six hours, but um but usually I was sticking pretty close to four yeah. and and I was doing those other things for my body. And for my soul, um, that, that kept me going. So that was a huge learning for me to learn that to be a writer is totally different. (laughs) You, you have to use different tools and you have to have different expectations. And, um, the things that, the things that in the nonprofit sector would have, I would have been, um, tagged as being lazy you know, here were actually the things that were ensuring my capacity to be able to perform. 
I think that's such an important point. And it's so hard to learn that lesson, I think, for certainly for me and to to plenty of other writers that I talk to on the show, that idea of like the way that the rest of our society measures productivity is not the way that we can measure productivity. And yeah. so like I I've struggled with that for a long time and I've talked about it, you know, here and there on the show, this idea that like working was sitting at my desk in front of my computer. Like reading wasn't working, you know, even like, even like writing by hand kind of felt like leisurely in comparison, you know, mm-hmm. like I really had to kind of break down all of those ideas of like what work looks like. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Cause you're right. You nailed it. Like the body, the body stuff is crucial. Yeah. And I, and you know, this comes up in my book a lot too. It's, it, it's, it's a recurrent theme for me where my body ultimately is what forces me to deal with something. You know, I, I had to, I had to have my body break down and and get this virus, you know, for a month and a half and see how it destroyed my work for me to be like, oh, body. Oh, right. You exist and you're important. That's what my whole book is about, (laughs) you know, and yet and yet I continue to seem to forget it because because I really I really was raised to believe. I think many of us were, but certainly in the church, you know, we are taught um, a mind-body separation or a spirit-body separation. And the body is talked about as uh, earthly and sinful, and the spirit and the mind are talked about. I mean, this is old, you know, Greek philosophy stuff that um, that Christianity inherited. And um, and so, you know, so so this is this is really difficult for me to break. And you know, I was able to break it around sexuality, um, but writing this book was just exposed to me yet another way in which it's still a part of me. I still I still am not giving my body the level of um, attention that it deserves. I'm still sort of like, well, it's probably bad for me to write with a bag of jelly beans next to me, (laughs) but like, but I'm freaking out and I got to finish this chapter. And so I'm going to eat a bag of jelly beans and that's just what's going to (laughs) happen. And I'm going to deal with the consequences of that later, you know, because, because my body, you know, is, I'm just not placing it on the same level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to back up a little bit to the process of putting the proposal together and selling the book because you mentioned um, that it does do, you know, as you mentioned, all these different genre things and has all these different genre requirements. And and I feel like that's not really a thing that editors love, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they like kind mm-hmm. of want you to be, well, like what shelf do I put you on? What are you actually doing here? And, and so I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about if that was your experience, you know, what um, and even what you get into briefly in the book about being told, you know, that you needed, the story needed more levity. Like, it seems like you, you right. had a really interesting journey with, with convincing, uh, somebody on this book. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was hard. I mean, um, yeah. So what you're referencing around, you know, the first time that I tried to sell this book, uh, uh, that I tried to write a proposal and get an agent, not even sell the book, um, just get an agent, um, was about five years before I ultimately um, sold the book. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, some people were supportive, but uh, but there was a lot of closed doors, to be sure. <laughs> um, and And then when ultimately, you know, we ended up, I ended up getting an agent, which took many more years, before I was even able to do that, uh, I would say it probably took me a year and a half working working with that agent before I was able to um, 
get the proposal together and be ready to be sold. And I think part of the reason for that was because it was genre bending. And, um, you know, I even, I had a, I had an agent at my agency who retired while working with me. (laughs) That's how long I was taking. He was like, I'm done with the game, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, which, uh, you know, (laughs) which I, I, Fortunately, got another agent um, within the house. <laughs> they 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 brought me someone to someone else who's wonderful. But um, but anyway, so so the process was long and hard. And the the good news is, is that throughout the proposal, my agent was supportive of this being a multi genre piece. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think that that's exactly why I ended up having two structures turned down. The first time, my editor. Uh, I I can't remember which was the first and which was the second, but one of the two times my editor was like, this is too much about you. And the other time my editor said, this is not enough about you. Right. So, um, so once I was trying to do something that was a balance between the two, um, it was really hard to know where, how do you strike that balance? And it was tempting, you know, throughout the process to consider the possibility, like maybe this is just a memoir, um, or maybe this is just other people's stories. And, you know, and my story is, uh, you know, a couple pages at the beginning that let people know where I'm coming from, but otherwise I'm not in the book at all. Um, but it just couldn't be because the, what this book is all about is about story exchange. And it's about how my doing this story exchange with people for 12 years healed me and ultimately, you know, healed them. I mean, there's a, for many of my interviewees, I interview them multiple times. um, And for some people, there's a gap of seven, eight, nine, 10 years between our interviews. And many times when I would talk to the people who I interviewed, you know, for a second or third time, 10 years later, they would talk about that first interview being life-changing. Um, and, and so, you know, so, so really it is about this exchange and, and that's why it had to have all of that, um, because I'm not a researcher, I'm not a sociologist. I didn't come at this, um, as a neutral party, um, you know, in a way that it would imply if I just gave you a little bit of background on me and then dove into the other people's stories exclusively. I am a fellow sufferer. <laughs> I, I am a fellow freedom seeker. <laughs> and um, and that's the story, right? That that we that we break free together, that there's no such thing as breaking free alone. Can you talk about your experience as kind of the steward of all of those stories? You know, I imagine that was one piece of the emotional fraughtness as you worked this idea of like, you know, knowing that you're kind of in charge of these narratives and, and feeling responsible to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt a great sense of responsibility. Um, and people really trusted me with, you know, as I said before, stories that they had never told before. And I took that, I took that very, very seriously. Um, the, I would say that what I just kept doing was going back to the interviews and really trying to understand exactly what they were saying. Um, you know, I did, I didn't put in always exact phrasing the way that they phrased it. Um, you know, I might take one part of their story and connect it to another part of their story that was said an hour later, but that was the next part of that story, mm-hmm. you know, um, because, because, you know, we don't speak in a linear way. We, we speak in a fragmented way, um, that, 
that doesn't translate onto the page as well. Um, so I was so I so I was very careful in while I was taking creative license to be as true to the person as I possibly could, and to never to never um, uh, represent them or their intention or their story in a way that didn't feel that didn't feel right to them. Um, but I still was afraid that I was doing it wrong. Um, you know, and so ultimately what I ended up doing was giving everybody the opportunity to read their section mm-hmm. and, uh, and to give me feedback, um, on things that they saw that were problematic. And, uh, and, and a lot of people, you know, had no feedback or they would have one piece of feedback that, that was, you know, not something that I thought was at all important, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, but that really meant a lot to them. And I felt so glad to be able to make, to make that change for them, um, that made them feel more comfortable, even though it felt, you know, completely periphery to me. You're like, oh yes, I'm happy to take out that half a sentence where you mentioned your sister because you want to, you want to, don't want to talk about your sister because that's your sister's story. You know, that, that doesn't change anything for me at all. Um, and I'm so glad to be able to do that for you and to not have to have you worry about your sister for the <laughs> for years, you know? Um, so, so I actually think that was a really, really positive thing for me to do. I think a lot of writers, you know, you, you, there's a big question of how much you're going to involve your interviewees and your ultimate product. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was, you know, really tricky. I, I was, uh, afraid that somebody was going to come and say, uh, I've changed my mind and this is too intimate and I don't want it in a book anymore, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, um, but, but, you know, people were really fantastic. And, uh, and the thing that has been the most satisfying for me so far, you know, the book hasn't come out yet. It doesn't come out until September 4th, but, uh, but I sent advanced copies to my interviewees and I've been getting such incredible messages from the interviewees. Um, just really, really moving, powerful um, messages. One one woman, I'll, I'll loosely quote her, wrote me and said, um, you know, you saw me and you treated my story like it mattered and you treated your, your own story like it mattered and you treated us, these people who have been told that, uh, that we don't matter like we all mattered. And, you know, and, and then she said, this is, this is the greatest gift. This is one of the greatest gifts that I will ever be given. And, and I, and I mean, even, even just the way she phrased that, you know, she, treating her story like it mattered was important, but also her seeing me treat my own story like it mattered and us treating me, treating us all like our stories mattered. You know, there is something, the interviewees, uh, you know, for, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but a lot of people have come back to me and said, you know, th- thank you for letting me be part of this movement. You know, they don't see it as an interview. Mm. Um, they see it as being part of something larger. And, and the gift isn't just that they were heard. The gift is that they were heard as part of a community of people who are being heard. Right, right. Did you um, have anything in mind about what you would do if somebody did? say that they didn't want to be a part of it anymore? Be sad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I, uh, I didn't, <laughs> 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 I mean, I just really tried hard to, um, to, to do, to do, to do justice to people's stories and to stay in touch with them. Um, and, uh, and I just really hoped, <laughs> I just <Yeah>. really hoped <laughs> and prayed. Did you, um, 
over the the lifespan of the project um, ever, you know, you talk a little, you talk a, a little bit in the book about how for a period you don't write anymore um, or you don't work on the project anymore. Did you, did you ever feel like you were giving it up for good? I, I wanted to, I, I never really thought that I was though. Um, it, it just never, it never stopped gnawing at me. And, you know, I, I knew, I knew that, I knew that this would be gnawing at me for the rest of my life if I didn't do it. And people kept calling me. And, uh, you know, once it comes out that you're collecting stories on something that people desperately need to talk about and have no places to talk about, you get a lot of calls. And, you know, so I kept being contacted by people who said, you know, I heard that you're collecting stories about this. And I kept doing coffees with people and I kept doing dinners and I kept doing phone calls. And uh, so it, it would be gnawing at me forever. And also, you know, the world was gnawing at me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so as much as I wanted to, as much as I wanted to stop, um, I, I don't think that, I don't think that deep down I ever really believed that I could. Right. Right. And I'm sure that only compounds the more stories you collect. Yeah. I feel like, well, absolutely. these people have all trusted me. And- yep. Did you, were you thinking in terms of, I mean, for lack of a better term, kind of character development over the course of the book in terms of the, the women that you're talking to, you know, once you share part of somebody's story, do you, were you thinking about how they reappear and how that story evolves? Yeah, I did think about that. Um, you know, people don't reappear, uh, in depth. Yeah. You know, everybody gets their own deep chapter. Not everybody. 12 people get their own deep chapter. And then of course there are like little excerpts, um, throughout that support the universality of various experiences. So, so someone's name might show up again in that way. Um, but I did think about that, you know, when I, when I chose to, to share an excerpt from somebody, you know, and I, I would include their name, um, and I would know that someone might reference back, (laughs) you know, say, oh, I remember a whole chapter with that person. Right. Um, so I did think, I did think carefully about, um, sort of the, when, when people would reappear, reappear rather, um, you know, that to create a cohesive, a cohesive understanding of their story. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, how were you kind of organizing and keeping track of those stories over, over 12 years? Um, the, so the first year of interviews that I did in my hometown was, uh, you know, a lot of handwritten stuff. I had notebooks and things like that. And I had uh, file folders <laughs> that I used to keep, you know, to keep all of these things where I would have scraps of paper and emails that I printed out and drawings that people did to illustrate something or whatever, all in these file folders. And then when I started doing interviews, uh, you know, the in New York, um, recorded interviews while I was in grad school, that's when I started recording things, um, auto, you know, on audio files and so on and so forth. Um, and you know, so that I would, I was storing them a little bit differently. And then over the years, you know, it was, yeah, it was just like a million files. Right. Um, and, and, but, but the, the reason that I, what I really wanted to make clear is that actually what shows up in the book is a little bit different. So essentially when I 
sold the book, when I sold the proposal, I then contacted all the people who I had previously interviewed or had deep conversations with that I still was in contact with or felt comfortable reaching out to. And I reached out to all these people. So people I've been talking to for 10 years, um, some people, you know, who I hadn't talked to in 10 years and said to them, Hey, this, you know, once upon a time, I was telling you that this might be a book project. Uh, it is a book now, and I would love to include your story. And I basically offered to people, let's sit down together if you're open to it uh, or or hop on the phone and I can tell you more and I can tell you what you said in our first interview and I can ask you for updates or what you disagree with or what you you know feel comfortable with me writing in this book or what you don't and hear what's happened in your life since then. And really all the interviews that appear in the book are interviews that I did in those, it, you know, in that later stage in the last couple of years. Um, or they are references to interviews that were done a long time ago. Um, there's only one interview that appears uh, deeply in the book where somebody said, I don't want to do a re-interview because it's just too painful for me to talk about, but you're welcome to use my old interview. Mm. Um, but everybody else you know, who, who I'm referencing an old interview of in the book um, uh, there's, I guess there's one other person who I have a short excerpt from who said, you know, I approve you using that without talking to you again. Um, but, but basically everyone else, you know, I'm revisiting with them. I'm, I'm talking to them very recently. Um, and I'm, I'm reading them quotes of what they said 10 years ago mm -hmm. and saying, okay, here's what you said 10 years ago. You said, um, you know, this story, you know, and I would repeat it word for word. And sometimes people would actually, uh, interestingly, <laughs> you know, sometimes people would say, oh gosh, that's a very religious person you were talking about, talking to, <laughs> you know, and that I don't identify, you know, with that language that I was using back then, but yes, the story is, it is the same. I just wouldn't talk in that way anymore because I've left the community or whatever it is. And then other people would tell me before I read them back an old story, because I would read them something and then we would talk and then I'd read them something and then we would talk. Um, some people would literally tell me a story word for word, the way that they had told it, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. And I would say, oh my gosh, let me read to you how you said it 10 years ago. And they would say, oh no, I'm, <laughs> I haven't changed at all. Um, so anyway, so, so I just tell you all that to say, you know, I, I, yes, I was storing all of these things for all of these years, but, um, but my storage isn't what is represented in the book. Um, it's most of the book is, is, is new material that references what I stored, but through, um, through a filter of, uh, of them approving that as still legit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, um, it's while, you know, while I'm talking to you, I, up on my desktop, I have this um, sticky note from a piece of advice that actually another writer on the show had gotten, uh, Lisa Ko, and it really resonated with me. So I copied it and I just have it here. And it seems like this was really true for you um, and in a way that you document. So I am anxious to hear if this resonates with you. But um, that in order to write the book you want to write, you have to become the person you need to be in order to mm. write that book. Yes. I feel like you had like, and, and that whole, the, you know, toward the end when you go home and you, you know, you have this really powerful moment of realizing that you were kind of looking for your mom's permission to do this thing. 
and then so you leave again and uh, that was all very powerful to me mm, thank you thank you yeah i yeah it's um you're absolutely right you know when i first went home to write this book that was 7 years ago or so and i realized i wasn't ready i realized i was still i was still too afraid of upsetting people and that i was still too afraid of losing the approval of people who i really wanted to approve of me <laughs> and um i wasn't there yet you know i wasn't there yet where i could say actually people need to be upset about this so if i upset people okay we should be upset you know people some people are feeling like uh, they're so worthless because of this messaging that they shouldn't be alive this is not um you know we're not talking about shyness or bashfulness we're talking about life threatening realities for some people um so i so I, yeah so i have to i have to make peace with i have to make peace with what comes and um i wasn't there i wasn't there and you know in many ways i look back and I feel very grateful that I that this book didn't come back didn't come out then. Um I don't know how I would have handled it then. I don't know what the book would have been. Yeah, so now do you feel um you know more confident to say like I I know what this book means to me, so it I don't need to absorb what it might mean to other people in ways that are harmful. Yeah, more confident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and it's been, it's, it's actually been interesting having the book come out when it is, uh, because of the Me Too movement mm -hmm. and the reception I think has changed with the, with the Me Too movement. I think more people are starting to feel, uh, justified in talking about sexual pain in a way that we, we didn't feel we were allowed to do not so long ago. I mean, I think it would just be like a different type of book, but like, you know, were you thinking, you know, these are the people who are not being heard, so I'm only going to tell their stories. Ah, you mean, you mean, you mean the choice not to represent an equal number of people who are like, purity culture was fantastic for me. Yeah, not even an equal number, just like, um, and and I don't mean that because I think it's like lopsided or anything like that. I was just curious, like uh, the if the thought process for you of like, do I need yeah. do I need those voices in the book? Yeah, it's interesting. So you know, those initial interviews that I did, particularly those that I did in my hometown, when I really interviewed anybody who who I could find who was willing to talk with me, <laughs> um, not everybody was telling me stories of pain. You know, as I said in that first year of interviews, it was about half the people I talked to. Um, I don't think that means that only half were experiencing pain. Right. Um, but of course only half told me stories of pain. Um, you know, but I really, I went back and I contacted the half who also didn't tell me stories of pain and, uh, and would have gladly, uh, I think at that point, um, you know, included their stories in the book. But what was so interesting is that, uh, most of those people didn't respond to my message. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, the, the, those who did respond, um, you know, selected not to be, uh, not to be interviewed. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if someone wasn't re-interviewed and didn't want their old interview in the book, it's, it's just not there, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, 
you know, and, uh, and, and then, you know, one woman actually did an interview with me, but, um, but then she struck almost everything she said from the record Mm. because she was just, she was just very anxious. Um, so, I mean, so the only things that I could really use that she had given me permission to use were, um, were not even about her. It, It was, um, uh, one line in particular that um, that she had wanted me to use to represent her story was, "I'm so glad that I could." I'm I'm uh, loosely quoting. I'm trying to remember the exact phrase, but I'm so glad that I could uh, be a princess and give the gift of my virginity to my prince on my marriage day. Wow. Um, you know, and that and that's not accessible language. You know, I I would have loved to have shown her her real story um, that included her feeling like this worked out for her. <laughs> um, but, but I, but I know that readers are going to read, you know, these, these in-depth painful stories about people's truths. And then they're going to read this line about being a princess and they're going to be like, Oh, that doesn't, I, I'm not, in, I'm not entering into this person's story in the way that I'm entering into these other people's stories. Right. Right. Um, and so it doesn't actually help. It doesn't actually help the, the, the pro purity. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, I, I, I would imagine now, you know, thinking about that more as you're talking that like, probably they all very, they all are very close to the same story, you know, cause it is this kind of line that, you know, there's a, there, it, that's a very scripted story. It's a very scripted story that, so that's, that's the, that's the thing. When people did talk to me, um, they, it was almost like, I mean, I hate to say this because these are people that I love. Um, but you know, when it came to them representing their story, they didn't tell me their stories. Um, or if they did, they, they struck it. Um, they told me scripts. Um, so they would quote a Bible verse, Mm -hmm. um, or they would say this, this line about the princess is not, is not an original line. That's, that's something that you read about in books, um, in purity books. Um, so it's almost like, it's almost like the people who were pro purity were not, we're not speaking authentically. Um, again, I'm hesitant to say that because I, I, I feel like that could sound hurtful to them and I don't mean to, but, but, you know, but they weren't telling their authentic story. They were, they were repeating something that they had heard. They, they, they had heard that, they, that they were supposed to say, I, I mean, I hate to say that, you know, no, but I know um, what you mean. Yeah. Like, and I'm, I mean, they might, they might feel like they're telling their authentic story. Right. But. That's exactly why I'm hesitant is yeah. because I think that they would say, yes, but that encapsulates my authentic story perfectly. Um, but, but, you know, but it is, but it is, it is an original language, um, to be sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so ultimately what I ended up deciding was, uh, you know, that tells a story in and of itself, yeah. um, hesitancy and, um, and that, and that there are so many books out there about people who love purity. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can go to the Christian bookstore and you can walk out with, you know, uh, you're you know, too many books to hold, uh, that tell those stories or, or, or maybe not tell those stories per se, but you know, that certainly tell that perspective. And, um, and, and yet, what there isn't is, um, is, is, a, a you can't walk away with arms full of stories right. <laughs> that talk about it not working. So, so I, you know, I, that's, that's what I can, that's what I can bring. Yeah. It was, uh, it was really something, it's a very memorable image that you, uh, describe going into the Christian bookstore and saying you needed the books about sexuality and the person actually stepping back away from you. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, that was I'm like, such I don't a... know, maybe over there, maybe in that section. Oh gosh, that was so 
that was that was so embarrassing on so many levels because you know it was embarrassing that also for me, like I, like there was a part of me that felt like I'm not supposed to be going into the Christian bookstore and asking for books on masturbation. Like, you know, like I was was masturbation. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, so I was thrown back to that part of me that's like, Oh, I'm, I'm in the place. I'm Mm -hmm. in the place where I'm not, I'm not supposed to ask for this. Um, (laughs) yeah, the whole thing was so awkward for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) How do you feel now to have like, you know, you worked on this for so long and now the book exists and is about to be in the world. What does that feel like? Um, I, I would say that I feel a sense of anticipation. Uh, I am not sure what to anticipate, (laughs) so I don't know what feelings to have around that anticipation. You know what I mean? Um, so I just feel I, I, I mean, I know that you probably wouldn't find this on the feelings wheel, but, but I feel anticipation, <laughs> you know, and I, and I, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know, it's not exactly excitement, um, it's not exactly fear, um, but it's, uh, it's a sense of, it's a sense of, it's about to something. Yeah. <laughs> do you feel a sense of, like loss of the material or do you feel like you're not done with the material? Like there are more projects for you in this area. Mm. I, I mean, I think I've got some articles to write mm-hmm. uh, to be sure um, on things that didn't end up in the book. My first, my first draft of the book I think was 550 pages mm. and this is 350 pages, something like that. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot got cut out. Uh, a lot of that was just fat. Um, you know, so I don't think it's all new. I don't think it's all like I could turn it. I don't think I have 200 pages worth of articles. Um, but you know, but I do have some things that didn't, that didn't end up in the book, um, that, that I think are worth talking about to be sure. Um, but yeah, but, but I do also feel, I do also feel like this, this book is done. Um, you know, that I, I wouldn't go back and, I mean, there are some things in the book that I wish I had done a little bit differently, but sure. for the most part, you know, I feel like, you know, that chapter is closed. It was a very long chapter. <laughs> I could have, I could have, I could have kept writing on it for another 12 years, but, um, but I don't know that that would be <laughs> good for me. Do you have any, is there anything in particular that you want to do next? I mean, I don't want to feed the like, okay, now what? But you know, where are you eyeing yeah. up a next book project? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just be totally transparent with you, Courtney, um, because I think that because you're talking about writing and because this is a writing podcast, I think this is really important. Um, you know, listen, here's the thing: I worked full time for years, and this was my uh, side project. And I would say that I had just enough bandwidth outside of work that I actually really cared about. I didn't do work that was emotionally empty for me. You know, I did, um, I was working in nonprofits, working in social entrepreneurship, doing work that I thought was very important. So that took up a lot of emotional energy as well. And I had just enough bandwidth at the end, um, to work on this project. And so, so though I, you know, have undergraduate and graduate degrees that, you know, are, are both interdisciplinary, but involve creative writing, um, and have self-identified as a writer for a long time. Um, the result of doing this project for so long and the result of working full time the whole time, (laughs) you know, until the very end, um, is that this project has been my, basically my only writing project for 12 years, which is 
not healthy. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, but it was, you know, it was all I could, it was all I could do in the, I'm, I'm somebody who needs, who needs a lot of hours to even get into a flow with writing. Um, and so when all you have is early mornings or, or, um, or weekends, you know, you, you just can't, can't get into a deep flow on multiple projects, I find, um, at least me personally. So, so anyway, so it's been hard to move on from this and there's a degree of, um, excitement around being able to write about other topics. <laughs> um, and also a degree of like fear that I'm just going to say, you know, because I think perhaps I'm not the only one as a writer who works on one project for so long and then says, Ooh, what, what else, what else have you got? <laughs> um, so yeah, so I do have other projects that I have been dreaming about and, um, thinking about and doing some writing on, but they haven't come into full flesh by, by any means. And I'm sort of at this moment now where I'm having to say to myself, uh, okay, it's, it's time for you to stop dreaming about those projects. It's time for you to start putting pen to paper and start working on something new, which I think I felt like I couldn't do until this book actually was out in the world because this book felt so fragile. You know, there were so many days when I thought this won't actually see the light of day that I just felt like if I turned my attention away for a minute, it would fall apart. It would just disappear. Like if I stopped looking at it, it would dissolve. <laughs> you know, I've been trying to do this for so long and it hasn't happened for so long that, that now that it's almost happening, I feel like I'm st- still trying to pin it down with my thumb until the moment that it actually enters bookstores. And I'm like, okay, no way it exists. All right. 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 <laughs> well, I can, I can relax now. I can relax. It's actually going to exist. Now I get to, you know, have a different level of, <laughs> of anxiety around <laughs> the world's perceptions of it. But, um, but anyway, so, so I, it's been kind of exciting. It's been kind of exciting, um, and scary to now be feeling the book being so close to coming out and to start to be able to feel my body start to like, I'm starting to have a, a shift internally where, where my inner self is like, yeah, you can actually, you can actually start to work on writing that project that you've been dreaming about. You can start this and, and starting that, you know, comes with excitement and, and a little trepidation, you know, like to see, to see what else is in me. (laughs) Sure. Well, that is a perfect transition into our last question, which is, um, something that I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations. Um, what does creative satisfaction look like to you right now? Oh my gosh, what a good question. <sighs> what does creative satisfaction look like to me right now? Well, I think I think part of creative satisfaction for me is is around exploring new writing. Is around there there's something that happens I think with all of us, not just with writers, where when you do something that you care about, you start to feel aligned with it. So I used to run a program, um, on purpose for five years. And this happens to a lot of people, you know, when you have a sense of purpose, you start to feel it defines you. So then let's say your purpose is being a mother, you know, then your kids go off to college, we'll say, or whatever happens. And, um, you know, then there's a loss of purpose. Or let's say that you, uh, your sense of purpose is around being a lawyer and 
you know, you suddenly decide you can't do 80 hours a week anymore and, you know, you leave and you lose a sense of purpose, right? So so this happens, I think, to lots of different people. And, um, And I think certainly has happened around this book and writing for me. I feel like for me, creative satisfaction looks like rediscovering who I am as a creative person in a way that has nothing to do with this particular purpose, Mm. (laughs) you know, like remembering like, no, I, I am a creative person period. Mm -hmm. And, and I was a writer, I was a writer before this and I'll be a writer after this. And so I think, I think, um, recently I've been playing around with different things. Um, there's a musician that I know And so I approached him and I said, listen, I wanted to pull out, uh, I mean, this is related to the project, but it's also totally different. Um, I said, you know, I want to pull out different quotes from interviewees in my book and um, have actors hire or not hire, but (laughs) um, bring in volunteer actors (laughs) Mm -hmm. to, to read these parts because people are anonymous in the book for the most part. And then, you know, I would love for you to use these, uh, these interview uh, interview excerpts as, um, uh, as what, what are the, what do you call samples Mm -hmm. as samples to, to create a musical piece so that when people walk into a room where I'm doing a reading, you know, it's not just about black and white, like, like, uh, words on a page. Um, you know, they can actually feel these stories and, and, um, and, and, uh, you know, resonate with them in a different way. Um, so, so he and I are working on that. His name is DDA Sylvan. He's amazing. Um, I brought in a bunch of really incredible actors and, um, they did recording sessions and, and now he has those and is working on a musical piece. So I think there are some ways in which I can still work with the same content, mm-hmm. but, but in a way that is a totally different part of my creative self, um, that feels like creative satisfaction to me. Um, so some of that has to do with partnering with, um, other artists and, and it being about more than just writing. Um, and then I think from a writing perspective, it has to do with, um, writing about other topics, uh, and, uh, and re-engaging, re-engaging the, the, the person that exists (laughs) that is, that is not this book. I love that. Well, this has been wonderful. I hope that you had fun. I had a lot of fun talking yeah, to you. Yeah, this is so great. Oh my gosh, are you kidding? I feel like, I feel like, um, you know, writing is one of those things that I mean, you're you're in a position where you're doing podcasts all the time, so you might not feel this way, but it feels like one of those things where you know, as a writer, you spend all your time thinking about it, and you almost never talk about it. Oh, that's like exactly why I started doing it. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> makes Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio. And the theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.